Hello and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Nolan. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 239. So, Stephen, I did not get to work on the cat feeder unreminder. I went fishing. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's a that's a reasonable excuse. I saw some pictures from that. Those were those were some uh those were some big fish. Yeah, we caught a um well, I caught a 30-inch black drum. And uh, one of my friends caught a 41-inch black drum, which is... That's enormous. That's a pretty big fish, yeah. No, that's huge. Yeah. And, uh, and this is, by the way, we were fishing in the Gulf of Mexico off, off the coast of Galveston in the surf, like wade fishing, so not in a boat or anything. Um, and uh, it's always fun catching something that big because you're reeling it in up in, like, chest-deep water, and you're like... After about 30 minutes, you're like, I really don't want to know what's on the other side of this line at this point. <laughs> yeah. I've caught some big redfish out there, and, and it's fun because they fight for a long time. Like, fishing out in the, in the surf is, like, it's entertaining. It's not just, like, you know, pond fishing, which, don't get me wrong, I like a good pond fish. But out in the surf, like, you got to do some stuff. Yeah. And it's, um, because, you know, basically, after, after about a 20-minute fight, you're like, okay... Whatever this is, I'm going to throw it back anyways because it's going to be too big to keep and eat, right? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so you're like, oh, what's it going to be? Is it going to be a big shark? Is it going to be what? Yeah. So did ca- I did catch a shark on, on that day, too. Threw it back. It was a two-foot blacktip shark. And um, so it was always fun. So people that are swimming out in the ocean, there are sharks everywhere. And, and a hurricane a day away. And a hurricane day away, yes. <laughs> so yeah, if I'm uh, if we don't have a podcast next week, it's probably because I could not record anything because of a hurricane. <laughs> I didn't even think, but we were talking about the hurricane right before this. But yeah, you, uh, you're right. Maybe maybe I'll do a Stephen only uh, podcast. Well, we did one during uh, Harvey. Um, we d- we did one like uh, three hours before Harvey hit. Yeah, and then we did one in the aftermath. I basically we did. Um, did we do that at your? Apartment? I think we did do that at your apartment. The, the, no, the first one, the one right before Harvey was done in the bomb shelter, and then a few hours later, the bomb shelter was no longer. Oh, and, that's uh, right. And then the next one we did at my apartment. I think I was just, I think that was like right after like the roads were like partially drivable. Yeah. It should, everything should be fine. If anything, I'll just start the generator up outside and run my like recording equipment <laughs> or bring the recording equipment into um macrofab to do because they we usually don't uh lose power there um so steven what have you been not not doing <laughs> i've been trying to do things attempting uh actually i wanted to call out um so not last week but the week before um, i'd mentioned uh, looking into solutions for measuring low currents in high voltage applications or or how do you measure basically how do you measure current um, in in a high voltage environment and uh, it's pretty cool the slack channel started you know jumping up on that so and and you know kind of giving a bunch of ideas and um, Tony underscore W recommended a, a really cool IC that I want to showcase here it's called the ACS 37002, which is made by a company called Allegro, Allegro? Micro. Um, so this this IC is kind of purpose-built for doing exactly what I was talking about. Uh, it has an integrated Hall Effect sensor that 
can be ground referenced in very high voltage applications, which that was kind of, there's so many ways to measure current, but having the stipulation of it being ground referenced and then being able, so, so high voltage on one side of my current sensing and then low voltage to a processor on the other side, that makes it incredibly difficult. Like that's the hard part to get by. And this ICE basically does that. So it offers 4.8 kilovolt RMS of isolation voltage in like a TSOP 16 package where one, like the left side of the package is dedicated to high voltage and the right side, like it's, it's kind of cute the way they worked it out. But uh, so you can power it of uh, up to 6.5 volts. So it can be on your 3.3 or your 5 volt uh, circuits. It has a negative 50 to positive 50 amp sensing range. So this thing is whoo, monster. Like, okay, so I, I think the way they have it set up there. So on a TSUB 16, there's eight pins. Let me let me let me look up the data sheet just so I'm not talking out. My yeah, butt there's here. eight eight pins of it are set up for the the high voltage current side. Right, right, right. So yeah, you have four pins dedicated to one uh, to the to one side and then four to the other side uh, across that one small resistor. So you know what they they do whatever magic inside that chip to provide five thousand almost volts of isolation, which is kind of ridiculous. Uh, so, so the thing is, this particular chip, because it is meant to uh, measure high current, it may not be a, the exact right choice for my application. Because most of my application, I'm looking for moderate to high accuracy in the milliamp range at 500 volts. So the thing about this chip is, you get a couple of options with your gain selection. You can you can do some magic with pins and adjust gains of things. And you end up getting uh, somewhere in the range of 30 millivolts per amp to 60 millivolts per amp uh, worth of output voltage. So this thing just basically spits out an output voltage that's proportional to the current that's flowing through it on the high voltage side. And that's fantastic and all, but if it's only 30 millivolts per amp, or let's say on the high gain side, it's 60 millivolts per amp, if I wanted to measure one milliamp, that would be um, 60 microamps per uh, milliamp, or sorry, 60 microvolts per milliamp, right? Yep. So uh, that is, we're, we're pretty low in the voltage range there. So, you know, solution to that might be to apply gain afterwards and bring it up. But the problem is this chip also doesn't have spectacular uh, voltage offsets. It's it's in the millivolt range, but in order to get 60 microvolts per milliamp up to where I would need it to be, I'd have to apply a gain of a thousand or ten thousand or something. Well, then I'm adding a bunch of noise, and then um, I'd also be applying gain to an offset, which I'd have to adjust somehow. So maybe I could have a trim pot that would allow me to zero it out and things. But I don't know. It gets a little difficult because. Really, I would love to read the, a range of 0 to 200 milliamps with a resolution of 0.1 milliamp. So really, straight off this chip, at its maximum gain, I'd be looking at 6 microvolts is 0.1 milliamps, which you can read 6 microvolts, but if anyone's tried to do it, it's tough, right? It, yep. It's not, not the easiest thing. So you know, I could add gain to it. So I was really excited when I saw this chip because it was like, oh, it solves all my issues, but damn it, it doesn't have, it has crappy gain for my application. I mean, it's it's great 
for reading amps of uh, of current. So, you know, I I, I suppose uh, if you were doing like um, I don't know. Uh, like motor theme battery monitoring or something like that or like motor coils and things like that that get up that have like high spikes and things like that you could do that pretty easily with a chip like this especially because it has 5,000 volts of isolation or almost and uh so yeah there's a lot of cool aspects of it so i want to look a little bit further into it because maybe i could do some like offset calibration stuff to get rid of whatever offset but still apply a boatload of gain to get where I want, and then you know, if I design a really low noise circuit, maybe I can do that. You know, in fact, I, I haven't even looked at what this chip's um, noise figure is, or what its actual what its resolution is. Uh, right, right. I don't know. I mean, it's it's analog, so its resolution is its resolution theoretically infinite. Yeah, theoretically. <laughs> That's a throwback to like episode three. Yeah, when we found a data sheet that had a potentiometer and it was talking about rotational accuracy. Yeah. <laughs> infinite. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't even know what the what the noise is. I haven't looked that up on this. But, you know, if I were to apply a thousand times gain or whatever to it, this this thing's noise floor would set the, the accuracy, the, the minimum accuracy, yep. right? Because I'd be boosting the hell out of noise. Uh, so, so. I'm going to keep looking at it because it might be, it might work for my solution, for my situation. But it's one of those things where it's like, ah, I hate it because it's so perfect in some ways and so not perfect in other ways. But uh, when it comes to doing what I'm asking for, I think that's kind of where I'm at. I have to compromise somewhere, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so I, I did look at, I did look at another solution, and this is also a compromise, but it might be a compromise I'm more willing to take. So, unsurprising, I'm trying to measure voltages in, in tube land, right, which are, which are high-voltage high stuff. So, I'm trying to measure voltages around a pentode uh, uh, tube, and a pentode tube has two major uh, conductors that I want to measure. One is the anode and one is the screen. And the way these tubes work is you have current flowing into the anode and you have current flowing into the screen. They combine together and they both, you know, sum together, come out of the cathode. So if I read the current at the cathode, I get the total amount of current that's flowing through the tube. But I don't know how much of that is the anode and how much of that is the screen. I can guesstimate, but I want to measure that. That's sort of what I'm going at here. Because in order to properly bias these tubes, you want to know how much heat just the anode is dissipating. So you have to know the voltage at the anode and you have to know the current at the anode. If you're just reading the cathode, your numbers are going to be off because they're skewed by however much the screen is. But if I can measure all of that, I can get an answer. Now, here's the thing that might make this work out well for me. There is a resistor in series with the screen and it's a known value resistor. So I I could put resistive dividers on either side of that screen resistor, measure the difference across it, and it's usually high enough that I could get plenty enough voltage to get accuracy out of it. So I I might go that route where I just do resistive dividers, read the voltage on either side, and then I know how much current is going through it because I can just divide by whatever the resistor value is to the screen. The thing that sucks about that and where the accuracy goes kind of crappy is um, I have to assume the value of the resistor on the screen uh, in my calculations. I just 
let's say it's 470 ohms or one kilo ohm or something mm-hmm. like that. It, you know, typically they're big two or three watt resistors, and I only put like five percent resistors in there. So the tolerance of that resistor is going to dominate the air of my whole system there, and I just have to be okay with being five, excuse me, five percent or something like that. It it's okay. I could do that. The other thing is in the cathode. The cathode is virtually never at anything at any high voltage in fact typically the cathode is just grounded so what i can do is i could put a one ohm resistor in the cathode i could just read across that resistor and it's only going to be in the it's not going to be much voltage let's put it that way uh, so i what i can do is just get volt to amp relation off of a one ohm resistor subtract what i read off of the screen and since i know the screen and the anode combined together if I subtract the screen current, I know my anode current, and I can back calculate my power dissipation of my anode. Bob's your uncle, right? So the, the question is, do I want to get this magical, super awesome special chip and apply a boatload of gain to try to get, uh, to, to try to get like a direct voltage off of the anode that I want, or do I just assume 5% error and do it the old school way of just putting resistive dividers and measuring directly? Like, there's a lot of trade-offs in both directions, you know. I would say calculate your error with that fancy chip and see if it's somewhere near 5%. Right, yeah, like, just do the calculations of both, find out which one is worse, and go the other direction. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that might be what I go for. And, and, and honestly, this ACS37002 chip, I was like, oh, this is super fancy, and it's, like, by this company that doesn't seem like, you know, one of the big guys, so it's got to be expensive... And it was, it's like four bucks, which, you know, that, that is expensive in general, but I'm not making like thousands of these and making yeah. one. So, yeah. uh, I, at first I was like, oh, this is going to be like a $20 chip or something like that. So I don't know. It's pretty cool. I like it. Um, I actually ended up designing a pretty cool, uh, connector that is based off of the tag connect system such that I could have like a bias test system in my guitar amps where I just plug in a pogo pin connector into my PCBs and I get anode, screen, and cathode voltages for every tube in my system. And it can go off to a box that talks to my computer and my computer can say, oh, your anode is dissipating XYZ, which is, you know, 50% of maximum and you need to be set for 70% of maximum. So adjust your bias until you're here. So I don't know. It's a, it's, it's a really, really uh, roundabout and long-winded way of doing something that you can do with a multimeter like pretty easily. <laughs> yeah. And and like the accuracy of these things is like you only need to be accurate to 10 or 15%. So I'm going way overboard. But this is this all spawns from the, the idea of like, oh, that'd be really cool. How do I do current measurement in a high-voltage situation? And it's just like, oh, crap, this is a lot harder than I thought. So, that's what I haven't been doing. <laughs> I I was doing a quick Google on on uh, I just typed in high voltage, low current, current sensing. Right? Yeah. You find something and, good? Uh, it's interesting. It depends on the company what they de- determine high voltage is. That's yes, because because most of the time high voltage is like above thirty volts. Yeah, that yeah, that's what I'm finding. Right. It's really difficult. Well, okay, so at high voltage applications, most of those chips that you see are like 
multiple batteries in series with each other and things like that. They're meant for like you know four 12 volt batteries put in series and you're like, oh, you need to measure high voltage 48 volts and I'm like, well, okay, that's cute. Let's go that times 10. <laughs> Ooh, this one up goes with the 400 volts. Mm, almost there. I add another 200 volts on that and I'd be happy. And this one's only goes up to 10 amps. So that it's even better. Slower range. Yeah. I, if you found something, I'd be surprised because I've done a bunch of searching and, and the Slack hive mind has done some searching for me too. So I'll take a look after the podcast. Hey, hey, if you find the magic chip, I'll go for it. It's my Google foo. <laughs> so what you been up to? That garage door opener. I finished the hack. Ooh. So the hack was to turn a standard garage door opener that, you know, is in the center of your garage and it connects via track to your door to what's called jack staff style, which uh, operates by rotating the, the, the uh, shaft that goes across that holds the big spring that can kill you and it lifts it up by the uh, cables. Um, so I got a, uh, some chain, some cogs, put it all together, um, and it actually worked pretty well out of the box. Um, the only problem I was having was the um, because of how I had to mount my my opener is the opener thought everything was reversed because when the opener was closing, it was actually opening the garage door. And when it was closing the garage door, it was actually thinking it was opening it. And so the logic on the button was different because like usually you, when you press the button when it goes down, and immediately goes back up, and then you press it again to stop it. Wait, did, did you add another cog in there and do some cog inversion? No, I did something a little bit smarter, as I just opened it up and reversed the wires on the motor. <laughs> <laughs> That's the electrical engineer's solution to it. Exactly. Instead of having to reverse the direction or flip the chain around or whatever. Um, and so actually, that was one thing I wanted to talk about real quick, was um, reversing the direction on an AC single-phase motor. Because this thing that has, I was like, oh, it would probably be a DC motor, right? And I'll just open it up and reverse it. And I open it up and there isn't a big uh, rectifier or anything like that that could handle a half, a, uh, half horsepower DC motor in there. So I'm like, oh, it's got to be a uh, AC motor. And I'm like, oh, how do they flip it around? How do they reverse the direction? Because a garage opener opens up both ways. Well... So it's got a split phase motor in it that is, um, so I basically I started researching how AC motors work because I actually never thought about it. And usually um, a single phase AC motor operates with a capacitor. And so you have a split phase winding and then that capacitor basically shifts the phase of the AC on one phase by 90 degrees. And that's how you get them to rotate. Um, and so basically looking at this, this motor is designed with the split phase being exposed and then both of them go to a capacitor and then um, the, there's relays on the control board that flip what winding is connected to the uh, capacitor. And so that's how it reverses correctly. Now, all I had to do was just flip which, which one's plugged into the capacitor which way. So I just reversed them. Um, and that actually worked really well, except that when I did, I put it all back together and then um, the limit switches that, so it knew how far to go. 
um, didn't work. So I just had to switch those around too. So on <laughs> did, the, you, did I, you switch them at at Did you rewire them or did you switch them on the board? I I so they um, everything in there is like spade connected together, so I could just unplug stuff and then plug them in different ways. Yeah. And uh, so yeah, if if you're doing this and you need to reverse a motor and a garage door opener, you switch it on the capacitor for the motor, and then you have to switch it for the uh, limit switches because then up is up and down is not down. Yeah, kind of confusing. It works. <laughs> um, and I did put in the uh, the uh, switch for the um, cable tension, and that works too. I was able to test it. I basically put a chair in the garage door and when it bumps it, it the cable slacks the sensor goes off and it opens up so it works great um i think all in i was 110 dollars. that's pretty cheap versus uh buying a brand a, a specially built jack shaft one which is 600 ish dollars mm-hmm. um now there is exposed chain and a big cog so if you're like eight feet tall don't put your fingers up there <laughs> don't get your hair caught in it <laughs> Yeah, we'll get your hair caught in it. Um, but, you know, it's like, I'll keep it that way, and if I move out of the house, I'll just put the original one back together. I kept all the parts. It's all reversible, so it's not that big of a deal. Pretty good project, though. I was uh, pretty happy it all worked out in the end. So, Have you ever had a Transformer manufactured for one of your products or projects? No, I have not. So... I, I recently uh, went through the process for, for a project I'm working on, and uh, I've, I've done it in the past, and I realized we, we kind of haven't talked a whole lot about that. Like, So is it, was there a specific reason that you couldn't use an off-shelf one? Uh, multiple reasons. And I, I, honestly, I think that's, that's the, the crux of the Transformer matter. It's like getting Transformers made for yourself is because you have a bazillion reasons why you would want a custom transformer manufactured. Um, particularly the... You couldn't just call up Roz and be like, I need a thousand of these transformers made? <laughs> I, I could. I'd get them in a decade. You know? <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the reason why I went with this transformers is because, go figure, the off-the-shelf transformers didn't have the tap I wanted. They, they they didn't have the voltage I wanted. In fact, we we designed this entire project around two transformers. One that did all the things we needed, and then an extra transformer that is basically that one extra tap that we wanted. And the whole system works great, so it was always our plan to take the two transformers and basically crush them into one and and incorporate in the big transformer the tap of the lower transformer. Gotcha. So, you know, when it comes down to transformer manufacturing the the what i've done in the in the past the a handful of times I, i've worked on mains transformers but also some uh some of the small i call them yellow tape transformers you know those little uh brick ones that you see in switch mode power supplies that have they're black with that very distinctive yellow tape around yeah. them i wonder i wonder if that's the same tape china companies wrap their boxes in yeah <laughs> I, it's a little too yellow because the Shenzhen tape is like, I don't know, it's like a milky brown amber color. And and those SMPS transformers are like safety yellow. It is slightly different color, you're right. Yeah. So so one of the things I, I've always found really funny is every time I've had transformers manufactured for me, it's always been different. 
it's like there's not like a it's not as easy as other processes but it's also not as hard at the same time like what i mean by not as easy as in every manufacturer i've ever talked to to get transformers made has different ways of doing it and you have like they're not standardized uh i've i've certainly worked on with with some manufacturers where i wrote up like a nice spec and did my own drawing for things and shipped it off to them and then we worked together to modify that i've had others where they were just like yeah just send us like what voltage what current you want in an email and then they made a thing i i just did one recently where this guy had a uh, a word document and like you you don't even you didn't even tell this this person what voltages and currents you wanted you told them what what it would connect to and then they would determine it for you and then with with the switch mode power supplies i've had some where like i spent half a day i went over to a transformer manufacturer with my product and we went over the design and what it would do so like it's never the same and i think that's what's kind of like special about transformers it's just not ever easy um unless unless they're unless you really just like a lot of my transformers have been for tube applications, but I've done a handful of others for other situations. The tube transformers are generally pretty straightforward because they don't change very much from design to design. You just say, oh, I want 300 volts on this one, or I want 350 volts on this one. And most of the time, those guys have a fancy little calculator where they just plug things in. It tells them how many laminations to put in there and what size. But they... they, they they stole it from Roz's website. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, <laughs> I bet you Roz's uh, transformer document is more intense than most of these. Um, <laughs> so, so here's the thing. What what I kind of wanted to mention has been my experience with transformer manufacturers. A lot of times, they hire engineers that are very well versed in transformer manufacturing, but also the loads that they attach to. So those guys are really, really good at that. So if you're having questions about your power supply or um, designing something around it and what kind of loads you, you're having and, and whatnot, most of the time I would recommend contact your transformer manufacturer and see if you can get in contact with one of their engineers and just start a, a dialogue about that. Uh, that's that's a really great way to start. And in that dialogue, you start to create the specs for what you want. Because like you can, you can basically... Let's put it this way. There's, there's sort of three major things that you get to define in a transformer, and the, manu the manufacturer gets to sort of dial in the rest of the specs with the transformer. You get to pick what voltage you think the tap should be. You get to pick what the current is on that tap, but you also get to pick what's called regulation. So a regu the regulation figure for a tap is usually uh, in percentage. You don't do it in volts or or amps, you, you do it as a percentage. And the, what the regulation, uh, it, what it is a measurement of is the voltage at that tap, if you had zero load on, on the tap, minus the uh, voltage at maximum load divided by, basically you're getting a percentage of how much the tap changes. Do you, you get what I'm going out there? Yeah, yeah I'm getting so, what you're saying. So, you know, like a, I, I bought a. I bought we a called that the um, it was the same thing with solar panels. Had the same thing. Mm -hmm. It was the oh man, what was that figure called? Keep going. I'm gonna look it up. Like an efficiency or not? Not efficiency. Um, it was efficiency, but it was a it was a ratio between what open open voltage was right. and 
what voltage at at maximum power efficiency in uh or max power there was a ratio for it very similar yeah it's it's basically exactly the same thing so you have to you have to know in general what your load is going to be like on your power supply and then you have to know how what what kind of variation you're going to see in your load on that transformer and then you can spec a regulation figure based on that and and you know if you went to a transformer guy manufacturer and you're like hey I want 1% regulation on all my taps. They're going to laugh at you and say, you know, get out of here. Because like, something, something like that is going to be really difficult for them to achieve. But if you say like, hey, you know, I want my, my transformer to be able to handle 12 to 20% regulation, something like that, that might be pretty loose. In fact, like if you go to Mauser and you just look at, uh, you know, whatever 12-volt uh, transformers they have for just like whatever use, a lot of times those are 25%. Uh, regulated, which means if if you're not driving them at their full load, the actual voltage that's coming out of that transformer is going to be way higher than you think it is, and you need to take that into account because you're now going to start dissipating a lot more heat in your circuit that you weren't thinking. Like, if you spec a 12 volt tap, it might be spitting out 15 or 16 volts AC. If mm-hmm. you know, and and so at the same time, like if you're trying to spec a transformer, you, you don't want to spec like just gobs and gobs of output current because that really affects the, uh, the regulation, like a 12 volt tap at five amps and say, uh, you only needed like half an amp worth of, of load on that. You're going to be way over 12 volts because you're not loading the transformer down and it's regulation figure is going to make it go through the roof. So these are all things to kind of keep in mind when, when getting a transformer made for you is you got what voltage you you basically want, how much current that that tap is going to need to provide basically at a maximum, and then how much regulation you you're you're allowing that tap to go up and down based on the load and and half the time you can just you know put that in a spec i mean assuming that you don't have like agency regulations or anything like that to worry about you could just throw that in your own spec hand it to your transformer manufacturer and then have a conversation on how that all works out you don't have to worry as much about like what what grade steel they're they're doing or what end bells they're putting on it or what how they varnish it or anything like that they they usually handle all of those nitty-gritty details you just define the the higher specs on that you you're treating the the transformer as a black box and they build you the black box yeah yeah and and in the so if you've ever tried to do a linear power supply where you you, where you wanted to hit a dc voltage like spot on it's not the easiest thing on earth uh it's and and i'm not talking about with i'm talking about unregulated say you wanted to put a rectifier put a capacitor and put a load on it off of a transformer tap and you wanted to be within two percent of your your voltage that's not the easiest thing on earth and it's dependent upon so many things. And, and actually, one of the things that's, it's, it's dependent upon that a lot of people don't take into account, it's actually dependent upon the source resistance of the coils of your transformer. And most of the time, you don't know those. Most of the time, if you look up a transformer data sheet, you don't get that. So that's where that dialogue kind of really helps out with, with um, talking with a transformer manufacturer. Is A lot of times, you can, you can approach them and say, hey, I want X voltage at the end of a rectifier, on on my cap 
let's design a tap that that provides me that and i know my mains are going to fluctuate by this many percent and i'm willing to accept this much load regulation uh therefore i'm willing to accept whatever range of dc values that will show up there so it, it gets way more complicated than what we learned in college you know where it's just like yeah you have this ac it goes through a rectifier and there you go now your transformer Think of it as a spherical cow that has no friction as it moves <laughs> through the air. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. You, you know, uh, one of the things that I think is funny is, in my experience, designing mains transformers has been a, a little bit more difficult than switch mode transformers because the switch mode transformers are a lot more uh, unified, shall you say, and and they're, they're made in a lot more bulk, let's put it that way. So... Most of the time with, with switch mode or flyback transformers, you can um, you can just say, like, this tap, this many turns, this gauge wire, because those matter a lot more in switch mode power supplies than, say, you know, the the other specs I've been talking about with mains transformers. And uh, and, and it usually comes out pretty well. And, and you know, there's, there's other knobs you can turn if you want to get really deep into it, like... What like I mentioned with the grain oriented steel, and do you want M six or do you want this or that or, uh, and and you can ask for like the BH curves so you can see the saturation and when the transformer is gonna kind of crap out and things like that. But I you know I it, for the most part those are those are academic and educational because uh, if if you've specified your your circuit well enough, then those should be covered. But within your specs, you know, most of the time you don't have to worry too much about that. So I don't know, I, I I find specking transformers to actually be pretty damn fun, and uh, hopefully that's uh, helpful to someone. You're just going crazy for not talking to people at work for like the past eight months. <laughs> you know we don't deal with transformers too much at at work. We try we try not to touch switch mode power supplies that use flyback transformers and crap because those get <laughs> those get really hairy really fast. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, although, like, I think I always thought those were those were interesting because my my entire experience with that has been less about defining actual voltages and more about you you worry more about turns ratios with switch mode power supplies than you do saying specific voltages because you, you you're worried about the ratio of what's going through it. Um, whereas, like with a mains transformer, you can assume a particular voltage through it, and you can assume a particular voltage, and you do the same thing with a switch mode supply. But the ratio matters more because you have a controller on there, and the controller's just going to mm -hmm. switch on and off the the flyback uh, transformer, and it will do the adjustment for voltages. You just want to make sure that that ratio is within its happy zone. Yeah, within the, uh, con the what the controller expects. Right. Exactly. Which nowadays, like. You don't have to design your own controller. You just go to TI, you find a flyback controller, and it says, produce a transformer with this many turns here and that many turns there and blah, 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 and that has you know these things. Of course, I'm making it more simple than it is here, but, uh, but a lot of times that's what you end up with, and then you go get one of these yellow tape transformers, and you're good to go. There you go. And, and here's the thing. Um, remember earlier I said, one of the reasons why we were uh, doing, or I don't, I'm even talking about this, is because I took two transformers and basically shoved them together and and turned them into one transformer. The cost of buying those two transformers separately 
versus getting five of one of them made, it's cheaper to get five custom Transformers than it was to buy five of each and then put them together. So that's another thing. Like, if you need a custom Transformer, don't be afraid of asking. They're act- they actually end up being cheaper than you think, especially when you get up in quantity. But, I mean, I'm talking about five here was cheaper than just buying off the shelf. Interesting. I wonder if the setup costs and designing is just so much cheaper or such disproportionate to the actual labor of actually building transformers well here's another thing to consider and um, it sounds like that's true it, it it is true and and one thing that if you're buying off the shelf transformers a lot of times you'll get a lot of taps that you don't care about or you get a lot of extra wires because off the shelf transformers are designed to be a lot of flexible. times universal and flexible, right? So mm-hmm. you'll have universal primaries or you'll get uh, different taps on the output that you can parallel or series and stuff. And then you end up having to deal with all these extra wires in your design that they're great for prototyping, but you don't need it in your final product. So in just taking two transformers and putting them together, I think we eliminated, it was between eight and 10 wires that were just extra taps or configurations or blah, blah, blah. And we took a total of like 14 wires for our circuit and brought it down to like five, I think, uh, because we just didn't need that many. Uh, mm-hmm. So and and we saved money on it. So think of all the labor for doing the wire and the yeah, connections assembly. and stuff. Assembly, yeah. So yeah, because you can't just leave the taps just floating around in the chassis. Yeah, you got to heat shrink them, or you got to uh, you know cut them and heat shrink them, or you got to uh, tie them up somewhere, or you got to do something with it because they're you know they'd be happy to conduct if they touch something (laughs) (laughs) would be a shame if we just arced over there (laughs) i've had that happen that's not fun yeah actually i in in this situation it's it's funny what we did was we actually unscrewed the transformer took the end bell off cut the wires at the bobbin heat shrunk them and then put the put the end bell back on it and this is purely for prototyping but we wanted to like we wanted to pretend like those wires didn't exist so we cut them at the actual coil and got them out of the way so we don't even have to look at them <laughs> hmm. which is it's that's so much work we could have just heat shrunk them and shoved them in our chassis but it would have made our chassis look ugly so yeah yeah for one offs that's fine so completely 180 now we're going to jump over into programming land, Woo. zeros and ones and computers. So I don't know if I talked about this before. Maybe if I have. If not, we're going to talk about it again. Um, so I've been working on some scripts for work uh, for our engineering team and um, and for our sales team. And uh, I do a lot of my scripting in Python. And I kind of wanted... Um, to like make a self-contained application because the uh, the great thing about Python is very easy to prototype something together. The downside to Python is you, it's an interpreted language, so you kind of need you need Python on your system installed, and then that Python environment, what's called an environment, that environment has to have the correct modules installed so that everything runs correctly. And so something that should be simple ends up being confusing and complicated yeah it's not like i can hand you this text file steven and you wouldn't be able to run it you know actually let alone if if you had python installed you wouldn't run it because you'd have you'd be missing probably a module 
Well, yeah, a, 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 a quick tangent. I want to throw this in there for anyone who uh, is doing manufacturing or thinking about getting their product manufactured. I cannot tell you how often I get emails where a customer is like, I've got my whole system set up and everything's ready. All you have to do is download Python and and then you can then you can run my my program and test never once has that ever worked ever and I, I, and, and, yes. and the problem is now i've got a computer that for this customer i've got python 2.7 installed and for that customer i've got python 3.3 because it only works for that like if you're going to set up a system for your manufacturer to test and program your stuff make it 100% bulletproof and tell them everything they need to know yes and so this is actually one way you can do that is I found a piece of software called Pi Installer and you run this inside your, uh, I'm using like PyCharm, which mm -hmm. is a, 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 a uh, integrated developer environment IDE for Python. And you can install Pi, uh, Pi Installer into that. And basically what, you, what it does is it, it compi compiles in quotes your your python script into a whatever platform you want to target for now it's not cross compiling so like if you're on linux you can't make a windows exe the only way it works is um so if you wanted to make a windows exe you have to be on a windows system to make that work which is fine i mean i got pycharm i i do most of my development on a linux uh platform and then i just bring it over to windows and I just make sure that what modules I use are cross compatible. Usually they are. Um, the only ones that usually aren't are like maybe like system level stuff or or GUIs, graphic user interfaces. And so um, basically that was my way of making it so that non-technical inclined people on our team can use these things now. Because it used to be, oh, Parker, go run this script. And that happens like 100 times a day, right? Now I can I can go, okay, here is a tool for you. You can run it whenever you want to run it now. Um, it's great. And so going back to that, the GUI, the graphic user interface is if you're going to be doing this and so you want it to work anywhere, right? You want it to work on Linux, you want it to work on Mac, you want it to work on Windows, is you need to pick a GUI um, that is cross-platform. So I was using uh, Tinker, Tinkter, it's actually what I used for the uh, trophy. Oh, okay. For yeah, last that's year's. spelled T K I N T E R. Tikinter. Yeah. <laughs> Tikinter. Yeah. Are you sure that's? It's, <laughs> I'm. That's how it's spelled. Yeah. Okay. And it's a it's a cross platform Python GUI. Uh, oh, it's T K interface. Is what yeah. it's short for. Okay. Yeah. And it is a little weird. Just because it's one of the older Python ones, but it's very well documented and it works really well and it's cross platform. And I've used it before because that was the, uh, or I used a version of it uh, for the Raspberry Pi um, trophy that we gave away, which I wonder if that still works. <laughs> Who, knows? Who knows? We can, we can find out the weather on Mars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, but yeah, I've tested Tkinter on Windows 10 and Ubuntu 20 LTS. Works great. Um, but yeah, I, I, I really like it. And um, 
I would highly recommend if you're doing like a Python script for the help, like uh, programming your product or anything like that. Try seeing a Py installer will help you out in that regard and and packaging everything together. Because you can also, the cool thing about it is you can make it, if, if your Python script is just a command line script, so like you run Python uh, Parker script.py with some flags, if you compile it, you can, it will actually still work that way. It will be Parker script.exe and you can still pass it flags through that exe wrapper which mm. is pretty cool hmm. um but then the thing is i can give that exe to you steven mm. and if you trust me <laughs> you should be able to run it on your computer and not get a virus yeah <laughs> that was the best thing i was like i was like it was like nine o'clock or ten o'clock at night and i'm like hey can an engineer just download this and test it <laughs> and then and then one downloaded it and Right. My computer says this is not trustworthy. I'm like, ah, just yes. <laughs> Don't worry about it. <laughs> Don't worry about it. It came from my computer. It's fine. You know, okay. Uh, small tangent. We've we've mentioned this before, but I feel like it always needs to be to be mentioned. If if you're developing a product and you want it to be produced at a contract manufacturer, and you, it it requires some sort of test or program or both. The assumption is, and this is a very safe assumption, they only have Windows at that office. If if you want them to test something on a Mac or Linux system or Ubuntu, you provide that system. Like, you can only assume that Windows is available. And don't get upset if you provide them some kind of weird Mac thing and they're like, well, we can't do this. Like, I'm not just, I'm not trying to sound too butthurt about this here but it, this is one of those situations where i've dealt with it enough where it's like dude like if you want us to do something that is outside the norm you you provide it and then everyone's happy and provide instructions too yeah the um the issues i start running into is um uh people send virtual machines or like live installs of like ubuntu or whatever that has all their stuff installed which works great except you know, oh, the USB hub chip works slightly differently in this computer than your computer. Right. And now we have issues. Right. Um, so what I actually suggest to our customers is when they're developing this stuff is make it work on a Raspberry Pi and then just give us that platform. Right, right. Because then you'll, because instead of having to provide, you know, a $300, $400 computer and, and, having to ship a couple you know like 20 pounds now you're just shipping a little tiny 30 dollar box that's got everything ready to go on it and then also don't assume the internet's great on the other location yeah 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 for sure like if you if you need to like store and and record data and then send it to something like come up with a way that doesn't rely on the internet being flawless all the time yeah the the way i've like to do that is I use a 4G hotspot and then um, what, so what I've done is have like a Raspberry Pi connected to a 4G hotspot and then the Raspberry Pi is actually running like a VPN mm -hmm. that tunnels through because then you're like okay no matter what as long as it's got 4G connectivity you're going to get the same tunnel mm. that seems to be the same it's also safer for security and all kinds of stuff because you're running encrypted over the air um 
this podcast brought to you by NordVPN. <laughs> no, we're not. No. Not at all. No. Not at all. <laughs> now, NordVPN, if you don't want to give us a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, you want to know a trick I've done in the past that I, that you know kind of solves that U, uh, USB issue? Um, we we were we were developing a a Windows um, software uh, app that basically connected to one of our products, and we didn't know like it could have been on any computer out there. It could have just been whatever out in the field, any version of Windows. So what what we ended up doing was was writing a a uh, USB port scanner that we would basically open up all of these USB ports and we would go one by one and just uh, basically send a, a signal out on the USB port to our uh, uh, and and basically say hello are you there and if our device yeah. detected it, it would be like hi I'm here and then our software in Windows would be like this is now my USB port it would find whatever it is such that you didn't have to plug in go to device manager find out oh which one is my device plugged into it did that automatically and and that made it work on any Windows machine without significant problems unless they hit the 256 number limit for serial ports well we weren't creating serial ports we were just pinging them yeah no yeah what i'm saying is if they plugged in that many devices well okay which yeah. happens when you're programming a ton of of com port oh yeah yeah where you like a new device found i'm making a new serial port for this yeah but yeah. then windows only go only has an 8-bit number to for those com ports yep. so you hit 255 and then and you have to go like, in the registry and knock it back knock it back and then reboot the computer because <laughs> right. it's in the registry yeah right been there <laughs> oh yeah yeah but 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 in terms of just like honestly doing a handshake saves so much trouble with with customers calling us being like well it doesn't detect our device well you can't just plug it in anywhere and it knows unless you have something like a handshake going on you know yeah yep yep let's wrap this thing up let's do it that was the Macafab Engineering Podcast. We're your host, Parker Doman. And Stephen Craig. And pineapple's totally okay on pizza. Hell yeah. <laughs>